Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening. Um, tonight, we are now 20 days uh, from the elections, our fourth, as we know, in a year and a half. Um, I thought tonight would really sort of focus, uh, um, with, you know, with such a small amount of time to go on um, what are the issues? What are the parties doing? What are their tactics, strategies in, in the, the days and weeks ahead? The first thing I'll say is that uh, most people who have worked on campaigns who have studied the material, the research over the years knows that most people make up their mind uh, around two weeks from the elections. That's something which uh, those of us who've worked in the election campaign world know that's the key time really to make your case. Uh, that's when the undecideds, let's say, uh, you know, start to drop off a little bit and people really make up their mind. Not to say that people don't make up their mind afterwards, but there's a, a huge number which are sort of, that, that's the sort of, you know, the date where many people's uh, votes are solid. Uh, after that, there's a lot of work in trying to make sure that your people get up to vote because just because people say that 20%, 25% will vote for you doesn't mean they will on election day, and especially the polls that we see day after day in Israel are not reflective of the fact that there is still up to now, I think about 20 to 25% undecided. And that's quite a high number, especially at this stage. And there's a lot of discussion about exactly where these people go. But let's start tonight with uh, the Likud, uh, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu launched tonight, very late in the game, officially at least, um, the Likud campaign. Now, there's been a lot of talk about that in Israel, that many of the other parties have been spending hundreds of thousands of shekels on Facebook ads, social media, posters around the country, billboards. Uh, Likud haven't. They could have really, really saved as much money as possible. And we're really expecting a blitz uh, starting today until the end of the campaign. There's going to be a real, real blitz of uh, publicity, advertising, etc. Um, speaking to some of the people in the know, there does seem to be a lot of unease. Some characterize it as panic uh, in the Likud uh, because they really believed, and this is suddenly Prime Minister Netanyahu really believed, that the uh, very successful uh, coronavirus uh, vaccine campaign uh, program would really catapult him to the numbers that he needs to form a government. Now, we've spoken about the magic number being 61. At the moment, Netanyahu and his two or three allies have no more than uh, 43, 44 between them. That means he is far from that magic number of 61, even if Naftali Bennett, the only other person on the map who said that he could sit with uh, Netanyahu joins, there's still uh, potentially three or four seats. Now that is significant. And there is a lot of talk about the fact that behind the scenes, um, there's a certain amount of panic. Uh, what we have seen in the last week is quite unprecedentedly, we see Prime Minister Netanyahu going uh, to the mainstream media, the mainstream media, which he uh, uh, you know, disagrees with, let's say, characterizes as hostile. 
today, tonight, in his launch of the campaign, he basically went off to the media saying it's biased, it's like an additional political party, and it's against him, and it's against the continuation of Likud rule. Well, he gave them quite a lot of uh, time on at least the two major channels. He had a half an hour interview. Uh, it was quite open. They asked him anything, and he... And there's a debate whether how successful he was. The usually extremely cool, calm, organized Netanyahu, at least on some of the interviews he did on TV and radio, at some point at least, he, he lost uh, his, I don't know if he lost his temper, but he certainly uh, went off piece from the script a little bit. Uh, there was one point he sort of, you know, made fun of uh, some of his rivals. He, he made uh, belittling comments about them. And um, there are those who, who see in this a certain element of panic from someone who's usually extremely composed. Um, the Likud campaign <clears throat> is centered around two uh, levels at this point. One is that uh, you know, this government has been successful. It's going to be the first country, Israel's going to be the first country to get out of coronavirus. And we see from Sunday, pretty much everything's going to be open. Uh, there's going to be opening wedding halls for, I think, up to 300 people, uh, you know, cinemas, sporting events, the whole education system. By the way, this is against the um, advice of the uh, health ministry experts. And as we know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been very beholden to their recommendations uh, for pretty much most of coronavirus. And now exactly, as, as you know, I talked about the two-week magic two-week number, suddenly the whole... Uh, of Israel pretty much is going to be open. Um, but there's a lot of questions and a lot of uh, Likud people that I know are asking why are people not voting Netanyahu considering the success he's having? Well, there's a lot of reasons and it goes on to his second level of what their attack is. Their attack is that it's either me, Prime Minister Netanyahu, or Yela Pitta for Yeshatit. Now, in previous elections, there's always been a party uh, which has been pushing the Likud neck and neck, sometimes one seat more, one seat less, two seats more. To, in the last elections, as we know, it was Benny Gantz of uh, Blue and White. These elections, the closest party to the Likud, which are polling 28, even 27, uh, is Yeshatid, which is polling no more than 19. So there's no one direct threat. Now, it's very important for Netanyahu, especially in previous elections, to show that there is a threat, and that's why they need every single vote. It's much harder to do it when your nearest rival is at least eight, nine, perhaps more seats behind you. So it's very, very hard. Also, his main rivals, at least to a certain extent, are on the right wing and ideologically in line or even to the right of him. So he can't call Gidon Saar a left winger. He can't call Naftali Bennett a left winger. What he says is, and there's a certain amount of credence to this, that it's either me or Lapid, because he's, he argues, if I don't continue as prime minister, then the only other option is Yair Lapid because he's the largest party in this block of uh, parties which potentially will not sit uh, with Netanyahu. So that, that's what they're doing. Yesha Tid has been conspicuously si silent to a certain extent, especially in the run-up to elections. There's a lot of talk about the fact that Yair Lapid has not been doing a lot of interviews. There's been a few tweets and he jokingly uh, said after Netanyahu went on a 20-minute rant about Lapid, uh, his uh, Yale Lapid's uh, Twitter feed basically put out a post. Even my wife doesn't talk about me this much. Um, but on the whole, Lapid is really trying to stay in the background. It's to a certain extent a clever ploy. Um, but you would think, especially with everything that's going on this week uh, around the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, we know there's been some 
there's been a lot of criticism throughout this campaign and before about the ultra-Orthodox community. Well, it's, it's gaining momentum this week. Uh, there was a ruling this week in the High Court that uh, reform and conservative conversions done in Israel would be recognized. That's unprecedented. The High Court ruled after 15 years of the government refusing and the Knesset refusing to, uh, to, to uh, create a law on this uh, issue. And the ultra-Orthodox uh, community, their political parties came up very, very strongly against this. Um, the, you know, sort of moving across, as, as we say, to the ultra-Orthodox, especially the Ashkenazi group, uh, party united to Judaism. They're feeling a lot of flack from their people. Uh, they're going down in the polls, partly because despite what the non-ultra-Orthodox community in Israel are seeing and feeling, the ultra-Orthodox community feel very disappointed in their leaders. They feel that they are uh, being bashed left, right and center, and they're not standing up for them. Uh, we saw last week uh, was the Festival of Purim, and on Sunday was what called Shushan Purim, which means Purim that was uh, celebrated pretty much only in Jerusalem. And it's usually when people from around the country, especially in the ultra-Orthodox community, come into the ultra-Orthodox uh, parts of Jerusalem and celebrate it with the big rabbis. And the Israeli government, knowing that this could be a problem with the coronavirus infection rates uh, going up a little bit, they basically canceled public transportation to Jerusalem, uh, created crazy scenes of whole families walking miles to get into Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. But they feel that they're being unfairly treated, they're not getting what they uh, believe is right, that they're being targeted. And remarkably in the middle, or you know, in, in, in a pandemic, the ultra-Orthodox uh, party United to Judaism, which is part of the government, has just decided today that they are no longer going to be beholden to any government decisions. They're not going to have any contact with the government, not going to have any contact with the police, not going to have any relationship with the media. Uh, and basically because they're hearing from their people that they are losing popularity. And so they feel that they have to show that they're strong. Uh, the Shas party, another ultra look party is basically doing what it usually does and reaching out to the more traditional minded Safadi voters, uh, to the lower socioeconomic uh, voters. Their, their uh, slogan is Ariaderi, a strong Ariaderi is the leader of uh, Shas, um, will strengthen the weaker part of society. So that's their traditional stance and uh, we'll see if that works. Uh, other parties, uh, Yamina, Yamina is really going strong at uh, basically trying, at least amongst all the other parties to a certain extent, they're trying to really show that they have policies, they put out an economic plan, uh, which has got a lot of people talking, um, but a lot of people are basically trying to nail down exactly where Naftali Bennett will be because he's the as we said, he's the kingmaker. He's the only one who said that I will either sit with uh, Bibi or not sit with Bibi. And he's trying to focus his supporters on or potential base or potential outreach uh, to those who really want to talk about the issues. And for him, it's how to get us out of coronavirus and the economy. Uh, one of the reasons Netanyahu hasn't been able to really make great hay from the coronavirus vaccine rollout is the fact that there's still almost a million people unemployed. 90,000 businesses have gone under in the last year. Uh, Israeli school children have barely been back, barely been in school for the last year. Uh, and it, it's just from one shambles to another. This week, there was the whole issue of the airports. Are they open? Are they not open? Who can come home? Apparently, Israel is, according to the media here, the only country in the world where citizens 
not foreigners, not permanent residents, Israeli citizens are, are, were simply not allowed to come into the country. And people, there was all these talks of people who needed, you know, uh, surgeries, people need to come home. They were, uh, you know, living illegally in other countries because their visa ran out, but they weren't able to come home. Uh, and basically there was no plan for it and no understanding of how to deal with the problem. And then we saw the Corona hotels and we saw all sorts of uh, sort of farces this week. So that's maybe part of the reason. Um, Yisrael Beitenu, another party, which is, uh, a lot of people have been talking that they may be the surprise of these elections. Uh, they really have, haven't moved from their solid seven seats all throughout the elections. Um, but a lot of people are saying that they are going to be the surprise. And if they are, it's one reason and one reason only, because they have taken the hardest line against the ultra-Orthodox community. There is not a single event that happens in the ultra-Orthodox community that Yisrael Beitenu and Avigdor Lehmann's leader haven't tried to you know, jump on and say, well, this will not happen under the next government because our sole aim is to make sure that the ultra-Orthodox parties are out of the next government. Uh, you know, uh, So that's really uh, those issues. Um, some of the minor parties, Labour, uh, are trying to go back to their sort of old-fashioned values, left-wing, socialism, uh, merits are, are, are trying very hard to stay above the electoral threshold. They're really reaching out, especially to the Arab community, um, because they believe that that's where they can get the votes. They're very angry with Labour Party, because as you can imagine, the pool on the far left is very small, and they believe that Labour could as they gain the seat, they could take away Merit's seat and push them back under. As we've said many, many times, any party which does not pass the threshold that at the moment is expected to, will really change the game. And that's what a lot of parties are looking to do. And at the moment, Merit's is really close to that line. Blue and white have moved up a little bit, but it's, there, there's always a poll every now and again which shows them below the electoral threshold. For the first time, in any poll that I've seen, Ram, which is the Islamist party, which was, uh, you know, Netanyahu was courting a while back uh, for the first time past the electoral threshold, but people don't expect it uh, to do so on the day. So there's really a lot to play for. Uh, the numbers, it, it, it remains to be seen whether there'll be a big surprise. Um, I'm sure there'll be, as we see with the Likud Blitz media, social media, we will see some very strong messaging. We'll see what Israeli politic, uh, political commentators call the Gavalt move, uh, uh, move, which is the sort of, I guess they would call uh, in America, the Hail Mary, uh, which is the last gasp, desperate attempt to try and get voters either by putting out a panic, sometimes false, um, or basically really making appeal that you know, the, the right wing rule is in, is in danger and you have to come out and vote. Um, so we'll have to see. But uh, at the moment, things haven't changed markedly. You know, there's always a bit of movement, uh, but not necessarily enough at this point for Netanyahu to form a government. And on the other side, there could be a government, but it would have to be, as we've talked about, a mishmash between the pretty much the right all the way to the far left would have to sit in a government with a lot of different egos, a lot of different uh, ideologies, uh, with one thing in common, to form a government, to and for now at least, the political career of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. So it remains to be seen. And with that, I'm happy to answer any of your questions. 
All right, thank you so much. So the first question, and we have quite a few on the uh, conversion case. Could you comment on the implications of the Israeli Supreme Court ruling this week, recognizing the validity of conversions performed by conservative and reform rabbis in Israel? Right, so first of all, it should be understood that this, that there's, that there's various levels to this. Um, first of all, uh, to make Aliyah to um, uh, you know, immigrate to Israel, uh, you're supposed to do it under what's called the law of return, which means that if you're a Jew, uh, then you're allowed to come and live in Israel. Now, obviously, there's always been a debate about what does it mean to be a Jew, and for the first few decades of the state, there was very little debate, and then there was a few cases, so they decided to really detail it down, according to halakha, who's halakha, Jewish law, etc., etc. So they decided that anyone who has one Jewish grandparent can make aliyah. Then uh, they decided, well, obviously someone who converts can also make aliyah, so who, who do we recognize? According to the state of Israel, anyone who converts from a recognized Jewish community can make aliyah. That doesn't matter if it's reform, conservative, modern orthodox, ultra-orthodox. Uh, if they're from a, a recognized uh, conversion, then they can make aliyah. Uh, and that, that, that's true, and that's always been true. And, you know, ironically enough, while the ultra-Orthodox parties are slamming this decision, Arya Derry, who's the interior minister, is signing every day the ability for people who went through a form of conservative uh, conversions to make aliyah. So there's a certain amount of hypocrisy, there's a certain amount of, you know, political campaigning here to be made of it. What this decision did is for 15 years, uh, there are certain individuals who, who tried to, uh, who tried to, who, who converted within Israel because in Israel we have around 400,000, maybe even more now, uh, uh, people who made Aliyah but are not considered Jewish. Uh, they're, they're Jewish enough to make Aliyah but not considered halachically Jewish under, under Jewish law. So they basically took the government to court and, the, and the, high, the Supreme Court kept on putting it off and saying, please government and parliament, can they please make a ruling on this? And there were various committees that Netanyahu and others set up and they were basically ignored. Uh, to the point where the Supreme Court said, we gave you 15 years to make a decision on this, so we're going to decide. And we recognize, uh, we have no reason not to uh, recognize reform and conservative uh, conversions from within Israel. And so, as one can imagine, the ultra-Orthodox parties jumped on this, but very little was said about the fact that for 15 years they ignored the situation, hoping it would just go away. As you can imagine, for Prime Minister Netanyahu, it's a very difficult issue. On the one hand, he needs his ultra-Orthodox partners. On the other hand, he also has to play nice because the vast majority of American Jewry is non-Orthodox and he can't come out against uh, these communities. So he's in a bit of a bind. He didn't react at all uh, to this decision. Uh, so that's really what's happened. Uh, remarkably, which I didn't mention, the day after there was a conference to talk about this issue, and an ultra-Orthodox uh, party member, Yaakov Pindrus, uh, was asked, well, what about the conversions that are done in the army? Because these people who make Aliyah but are not considered Jewish have the possibility under a certain program or during their military training to also undergo a conversion. It, interestingly enough, this is done under the, uh, under the chief rabbinate of the army, which is under the auspices of the chief rabbinate, which is under Haredi auspices. Amazingly enough, this United Torah Judaism MK said, well, as far as I'm concerned, these people are shiksas. 
which was a remarkably antagonistic and provocative word. He was slammed for it. He apologized for that, but he said he stands by his uh, designation. And as you can imagine, that basically gave a lot of momentum for this anti-Haredi feeling, which is just building uh, towards the election. So it's, it's definitely extended this uh, sort of focus on the, uh, the Haredi community and its extremism within its ranks. And as you can imagine, it gave a bit of a boost for people like Liebman, even some within uh, Yeshatid and others. And there was pretty much wall-to-wall -wall condemnation for what Pindra said, uh, even from the far right, you know, sort of uh, uh, modern Orthodox community, there was wall-to-wall -wall condemnation, but it's just another example of how one of the issues in these elections is really, what do we do with the ultra-Orthodox parties? So real quick, uh, can you just remind our viewers what the electoral threshold currently is? Basically, it's I think it's 3.25, uh, it's four seats. You either get four seats or you don't, or it's, that's the minimum. Uh, if, you, if you only get three seats, you're basically your, your votes don't get counted and uh, goes back into the system and, uh, when, when the, the full amount is counted. So basically the minimum amount of parties is four. A minimum amount of seats for parties for, I should say. Thank you. Uh, because of so many elections in the past few years, is there any strong movement to change the voting structure in Israel, such as fewer parties, longer period between elections, maximum term for prime minister? And our viewer does admit this is doubtful, um, but would still like that question answered. Um, remarkably not enough, to my mind at least. This is something I, I've been talking about for a long time that we're moving towards political paralysis and we're certainly there. Um, very little is talked about this. Tikva um, Khadasha, New Hope under Gidon Saar, has said that we need term limits, also is talking about a 60-60 bicameral parliament where 60 seats are in the current proportional representation and 60 will be by uh, regional voting. Um, there are some, and also there are some who are talking about fixed terms. Uh, Israel Beitena have long espoused a presidential system, similar in many ways to the American system with fixed terms and also limit uh, terms and more powers. Um, you know, as I said, something more towards the presidential system. Um, but Yeshatid, to the best of my knowledge, have again, uh, uh, most of the parties are now saying there should be term limits. Uh, but, um, but very few are talking about changing the system, uh, even though it's, it's clear that it desperately needs it, quite simply because uh, whoever becomes the next prime minister has to rely on at least one or two parties, which are close to the threshold, who will obviously not agree to change it, so they will then fall under the threshold the next time it comes around. So it's always a problem. If we could get some of the larger parties together, uh, to agree on this, but at the moment, none of the larger parties will sit with each other. So it's not likely to happen at this point, but it's something that's, to my mind, at least desperately needed uh, in the years ahead. So with all the, the smaller parties with similar ideologies, uh, would they ever consider uniting? I mean, it's unclear exactly who, because the smaller parties, if we're talking about the religious Zionist list, of Bezal Smotrich, Blue and White, Merits, you've got three very different parties there with very different ideologies. Uh, the only example of uh, successful joining is with the Arab, joint Arab list, 
saw in the last elections where they reached 15 together. Now, uh, one of the major components, Ram, as we talked about, the Islamist party has dropped out. Uh, now they're polling around nine, also because we did talk about them when I ran down, but there's also a large discontent in the Arab uh, public uh, with them as well. Uh, so they're down to nine. Um, but still, if they ran all separately, there's four parties, sometimes even five. Uh, it's unlikely any, maybe one would uh, go over the threshold. So they decided to run together. Um, but there's, they sometimes talk of other parties joining uh, and we've certainly seen that in the past, but usually what we know is that the sum of its parts is usually not greater. Um, so sometimes it's just not worth it. So that's why uh, there haven't been so many partnerships at this point, and it's too late anyway for parties to join. That uh, that already uh, passed a few weeks back. Understood. And I know we have touched on this the past few weeks, but do you feel that the Arab vote will impact the election? I mean, of course, yeah, we're talking about 22% uh, of the public, not all Arabs vote for ideological reasons. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see, and we'll only know this after the elections, exactly how many voted and where they voted. You know, there's a lot of talk about some maybe even uh, voting for right-wing parties like Likud. Um, I talked last time that according to Likud's internal polls that they've received at least one mandate from the Arab public, which I'm sure is relatively unprecedented. Um, so it remains to be seen, as I said, merits is very much building on getting a certain amount of uh, Arab votes, uh, but most of the other parties, perhaps Labour will also get a certain amount, but most of the other parties outside of the Jewish community, we talked about that last week, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they do, but uh, none of the other parties are doing much uh, in terms of outreach, uh, to my knowledge, significant outreach, I should say. Uh, to the Arab public, again, beyond the Jewish community. One of your rights, might Sa'ar come back to Likud for the good of the nation? I think definitely Sa'ar will eventually make his way back to Likud, but until Netanyahu uh, leaves, that's not likely, especially now. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the big debate is, will Sa'ar keep to his word? Because as I said, and Netanyahu even spoke about this. At the moment, the numbers show that even with Bennett, he does not have 61. The most obvious partner for such a government uh, with Likud, with Bennett, with the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties and with Smotrich would be Gidon Saar. Uh, as, as we talked about previously, most of the people on the list are previously Likud or have definitely seen themselves in that ideological space. Uh, so it would make the most sense uh, for them to go back uh, for them to sit in that government. Gidon Saar has said he will not sit under Netanyahu. Uh, again, speaking to a lot of people within the Knesset, within the system, a lot of people are skeptical about that, but he's been pretty strong on it. Uh, so it really, that will be the big test because um, I'm sure Netanyahu, as the great strategist that he is, is already trying to see where he can take maybe even two or three, uh, if that's what he needs. Uh, from some other list, because that's what he was able to do last time. He was able to take the Labour Party, you know, break it in, in two. Uh, the Blue and White Party, he was definitely able to, you know, rip in two. And you had even the Derek Heretz Party of uh, Hauser and Hentel, which he was able to bring into his government. Again, these are all people who said that they will not sit in the Netanyahu government. So there's a lot of scepticism within Israel about making such promises, because we've seen this before. Uh, but at the moment, I, I don't see Saar returning to Likud, but I think 
the day after Netanyahu, there'll be a lot of people who return uh, to the Kudamogi or not. So currently, what are the routes that Netanyahu could take to get those 61 seats? Pretty much, as I said, you know, it, again, if if Bennett uh, does decide to go with uh, Netanyahu and he hasn't ruled that out, uh, then at the moment, according to polls, again, these are just polls, he'll still need some. Now, where could he get them from? We've seen Netanyahu, you know, really reach across the aisle. He's taken people from the far left in the past uh, into his government, as long as he'll get that 61. So pretty much he would look at anyone from the Labour Party onwards. And there you've got the Labour Party. You know, again, we saw last time two out of the three that, uh, or three out of the four Labour Party members basically went with the government, Netanyahu, again, even though they said they wouldn't. In fact, uh, uh, Amir Peretz, the previous leader of the party, shaved off his moustache so we could read his lips that he will not join the Netanyahu's government. And there he was without a moustache in Netanyahu's government. So, you know, there's, you can understand why there's a certain amount of scepticism in Israel. But I don't think anyone yeshatid. Uh, Yisrael Betenu has shown that they're pretty solid. Um, so really the only possibility that Netanyahu, if, if I was in Netanyahu's strategy, strategy meetings, the only ones that you can see is within uh, uh, New Hope and Gideon Saar's party. And there's a lot of people he's worked with. Um, and there's a lot of things that he could potentially offer just to manage to get over that. And I'm sure this is something that they're thinking about now and they're not necessarily waiting until after the elections. Thank you. And if you don't mind, if we could go back real quick to the conversion case. Um, if they receive full citizenship, does this mean the rabbinic rabbis have to approve their marriage to another Israeli Jew to take place within Israel? That's that's another issue. Um, I, I, I sort of touched on it before, but in Israel, uh, there's, there's two layers to it. Those who are uh, able to make aliyah, uh, and there are those who are considered Jewish for the rabbinate. Unfortunately, we have a situation where there's, as I said, 400,000, half a million people who are not considered who are not Muslims, they're not uh, Christians that say, they're not Jews, they're people considered of no religion, and they really have no way of marrying. Uh, there was a law a few years ago, Yisrael Betena put through, uh, where basically says someone of no religion can marry someone of no religion. As you can imagine, that's very limiting. Um, marriages that take place abroad are recognized in Israel, regardless of who they're between. But in Israel, you have to get married through one of the religious structures. So a Muslim can marry a Muslim, a Christian can marry a Christian, a Jew can marry. Uh, but the rabbinate will not, will not uh, recognize someone uh, who got married, uh, who got converted through perhaps reform or has only one who is a Jewish father or a Jewish grandparent. Um, so that's a very different level. This ruling wasn't about that. This ruling was about the status to be able to make aliyah because a convert can make aliyah if they're from a recognized community outside of Israel. But if they're inside Israel, uh, then they can be considered due to Jew to stay in Israel and get that status within, let's say, the secular authorities, if they now, according to high court, if they converted through a reform conservative, which certainly wasn't the case uh, up until recently. All right, well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to us this week. Uh, for our viewers, please join us on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Ali Aliyami discussing MBS, back down, backs down, uh, 
Qatar's surprising victory in the GCC. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.